as a biblical scholar, I'm a little suspicious of the notion that there is a correct reading um, of any particular text. The texts open themselves up um, to multiple interpretations, which um, can sound a little scary, but from my perspective, it puts us as interpreters in the position of having to be agents of our own interpretation. We have to think through what is the range of interpretations that are here? Um, how does this relate to um, my um, own sense of what it means to be a person of faith? And then what is my community saying about about these things? So there's a conversation that happens between us and the Bible. It's not simply that the Bible tells us something. It's that, that we go to the Bible with questions and we come away with deeper uh, with deeper thoughts about it. Welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, your host. I would apologize in advance. There is a raspness to my voice. I've been a little under the weather. That's not a good reason to not do this, though. So, if you can forgive the lack of clarity in my voice, I think you're, I think you're about to jump into a conversation that I really enjoyed having. Uh, I sat down and spoke on the phone with Professor Robert Williamson, Jr. He is a professor at Hendricks College... He earned his Ph.D. from Emory University in Atlanta. He also received his postgraduate diploma in Jewish studies from Oxford University in the U.K. He has written a book, The Forgotten Books of the Bible, and in it we discuss Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs and Lamentations and Esther and Ruth. And when we approach texts that we don't often engage in, it's uncomfortable. What I appreciate about what Robert has done is is just that. It, the text that that the book is on aren't really Christologically centered, but they are communally centered. They do affect the way that we live and treat others, the way that we live as the majority or the way that we act as the minority in a majority, the way that we approach sex, anger and lament and blaming and victim calling. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. Let's get into it. Professor Robert Williamson Jr., Forgotten Books of the Bible. Robert Williamson Jr., I am excited to have you on the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Uh, it's not often that I'm able to to do a few things, and so I know that this is one of your first podcast interviews on your on your book, and it's also it not is. often that I speak to people about the topic of your book, because I think you are right. Um, and so in, in fear of burying the lead, uh, the, the title of your most recent book is The Forgotten Books of the Bible. Recovering mm-hmm. the five scrolls for today, and that's like Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, and a few others, and and we'll get into that as the episode proceeds. But before we do, what do you want people to know about you? Like, what if I was said, all right, you got three minutes, tell me about you. What would you want people to know? Well, I think the first thing is that I'm a I'm a biblical scholar who has a 
deep interest in the church and the life of faith. And those two things don't always go together. Um, and so I have a PhD in Bible and I teach in an academic position, but I'm also a church pastor and I have a little community here in Little Rock where I live called Mercy Community Church of Little Rock, which is a community of mostly of people who live on the streets. And so I'm kind of inhabiting these two worlds uh, simultaneously of being a scholar and of being a pastor and, and of course, of being a person of faith myself. Um, so my work, and especially I think in this book, um, is an attempt to bring all of those things uh, together, to bring some of my expertise um, from the academic world, but also some of my pastoral concern from the pastoral world, and to try to say something to people who are trying to live uh, a faithful life with the Bible as one of their uh, sources of inspiration. Yeah, and so you're a professor at Hendricks College in Arkansas, That's right. correct? So where right. where is that? Um, Hendricks is in Conway, Arkansas, which is about 30 miles uh, north of Little Rock, right on I-40. So if you ever drive west through Arkansas, headed to Oklahoma, which not that many people do, but if you did, <laughs> uh, you would end up in Conway um, about... 30 minutes after you pass through Little Rock. That works. Yeah, I've made that drive often, but I always get on to 30 at Little Rock. I never stay on 40. I get off of 40 right, somewhere right, right. before that. So, yeah, I'm from West yeah. Texas, and so driving from Virginia, you know, 81 oh, okay. to 40 to 30 to 20, uh, which just works well. You just count it down. But uh, yeah. so this <laughs> yeah. isn't a fair question, but of the two jobs and roles that you play, what do you currently find that is that is feeding your spiritual life more? Is it the professor side or is it the pastoral side? That isn't a fair question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so one of the things um, that I have tried to do, and Hendrix has been very good to me about this, is I've tried to um, minimize the distinction between those jobs. So when I founded Mercy Community Church, it was founded really as a place where I could bring Hendrix students to build relationships with people who are living on the streets. And so Mercy Church thinks of themselves as a teaching community, which is kind of interesting. So my students come down from Hendrix and the uh, Mercy community teaches them about what it's like to live on the streets and helps them read the Bible with uh, marginalized eyes or, or whatever you want to say. And then the students from Hendricks also um, think of themselves as a teaching community, um, helping people read the Bible. One time I had a group come down and teach, uh, teach photography lessons to folks who live on the street. Um, so I have tried uh, as much as I can to, um, to bridge those two worlds together. I, I, you know, I thought for a while about being a professor who had no connection to a, a ministry. And I thought for a while about being a pastor who had no connection to the academy. And neither one of those seemed right to me. And so I think it's that position in between communities that really feels, feels rich to me. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, you describing that, and it sounds very similar to one of my previous guests, one of my one of my first guests, uh, Dr. Richard Beck out at Aberlin Christian, where he teaches psychology, mm -hmm. 
but then he intentionally engages in a community that forces him to use his theology, which allows him to bring it back then and teach not not better, but differently. Um, right, exactly right. Yeah. So why this book then? Uh, why these five scrolls? Why are they forgotten? Like, what is what is the birth of this book? Is it is it that church that you helped found, or is it something else? Yeah, no, it's not actually. Um, it was interesting because if, when you read the book, uh, the introduction talks about Mercy Community Church and the forgotten voices of people uh, at, who live on the streets in Little Rock and the forgotten voices of the Bible and how those are connected. But really, I didn't honestly see that connection until after I had written the book and I was trying to think about why did I want to write this book in particular and what does that have to do with the other things that I care about? And I realized that that the, one of the things that I care about is um, providing a place where voices that are not often heard in the public sphere can say what they need to say, um, believing that there is truth um, that is spoken by people who live on the street, and there is truth spoken by these books that are in the Bible, and we are often too busy or too distracted or too oriented to other things to hear what they say. So... I, I do think there is a connection between my work at Mercy Church and my and my work in this book, um, but but the book didn't grow out of that work in any direct kind of way. I've actually been really interested in these five books, really ever since I was in seminary 15 years ago um, at Columbia Seminary uh, in Atlanta. The um, the the forgotten books of the Bible. Um, there are five books that I'm talking about, and those are the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And what holds those five books together is that in the Jewish tradition, those are the um, the five festival scrolls, the Chamesh Megilot, um, which are each read in connection with a major Jewish holiday. Um, so in the Jewish tradition, those five books get read, they get oriented uh, uh, into the liturgical life of our uh, Jewish brothers and sisters. They, they are part of the language of the faith. Uh, and in my own experience, those books uh, are hardly ever read, in, at least in the Christian churches of my background. Um, you don't hear them read in the pulpit. You don't hear them preach. You, you very rarely hear them even um, talked about in a Bible study. And so this book kind of grows out of this. Um, Here's this rich resource that we have in our tradition, which has been, for practical purposes, has mostly been silenced. And so the question of the book is, what happens if we let those books talk and if we take seriously what they have to say? Before we get specifically to the books, um, I've written a few questions about each of the books, although I don't know that I want to get to all of them. Um, I found your book extremely well written. And when I say all of them, I do want to get to all the questions, but I don't necessarily want to dive into each book uh, on, on purpose. Um, I want, I want readers of the book to have overwhelmingly things that they've not heard before. So I am curious. So why as Western church and, and I'm, I'm going out on a limb, uh, assuming quote unquote Western church, why have we Mm. detached ourselves from that tradition that that you know we're, we're we're founded from. Why do we not discuss these? Do you think why are they why are they shelved and and just let to be dusted? Well, I mean, I should preface my response by saying I haven't I haven't really delved too deeply into the historical 
um, events that led to the um, ignoring of the books. I, I have my own surmises about that. Um, one of them is I think that uh, Christian churches, broadly speaking, have tended to downplay uh, what we call the Old Testament kind of in general. So if you're going to hear a text read in church, more often than not, it's going to be a gospel text or maybe a Pauline text. It's not going to be the Old Testament text. Um, Second is I think that within the Old Testament, there are sort of these great traditions that are important to the faith. I mean, and they should be read. Like, I'm not saying we shouldn't be reading Genesis and Exodus and Isaiah, right? But um, we tend to focus on the kind of main stories um, and we don't have time to, or energy to, I don't know what it is to get around to these kind of minor, minor things as they're perceived, I think. Um, and third maybe is, um, the old Testament traditionally has been read in so much as it kind of points the way to Jesus. So the old Testament is often read kind of Christologically, yeah. uh, and there's not much in these books that lends itself to a Christological reading. So if, if that's your orientation, um, you might not ever really in, encounter these books. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do is to say, what if we just take these books kind of on their own on their own terms and and see what and see what's there. And I can see that. I can see how these books specifically don't necessarily point easily to Christ and what I can be surmised down into a 30 or 40 or 20 minute sermon on Sunday. Um, and I will say right. in preparation of this, I went to some of the, like the top 50, 60 churches in the country, their websites usually will let you search out their messages. And I just hmm. typed in these books of the Bible just to see how many popped up. And there were like two from going to yeah. January of 2018 to at present we're recording in the middle of July. And so, yeah. I mean, it's, and that was spread out amongst denominations from Catholic to, you know, everything. It was, it was all over the place. And so I think you've hit the nail on the head. Nobody discusses these. And, right. and another nail that was hit hard. So right at the beginning of your book, uh, as you, you, you dive, I figured you would save Song of Songs for the end, just because uh, that's an awkward, it's an awkward book. And if I'm honest, <laughs> I've never... There's a portion of me growing up that I felt like I had to be, quote unquote, allowed to sit at the adult table at Thanksgiving to also yeah. be allowed to read Song of Songs, um, yeah. which after reading some of the text of your book, and, and I know we've joked back and forth on Twitter, like some of the pickup lines I don't think would work, but I'll try them. And and so you, I like the way that you handle the text with humor, but also with application. And you you ask a question at the beginning that says, our culture, or you, you say, our culture has a sex problem, and the church is partly to blame. And so what do mm. you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is I think that the church contributes to, um, often contributes to attitudes about sex and sexuality that are oriented toward, uh, maybe toward guilt and shame or repression and control, uh, so that people who are raised in church environments often don't know how to talk about or how to think about or how to experience sex and sexuality as things that are good, things that are gifts given by, uh, by a passionate God. Um, and so we, I think have lost the, 
language of the the beauty and joy uh, of human sexuality. And I think that plays itself out. I'm not suggesting that the church is solely responsible for for problems in society, but I do think that it contributes um, in that when we don't have healthy ways of expressing sex and sexuality or talking about or asking about, um, that we tend to repress those things that then come out in problematic ways. So my my position in the book is that if if we could engage the Song of Songs in ways that teach us, give us language, give us ways of thinking about the goodness of sexuality, that then we can just own our our own nature as sexual beings, um, that that might uh, enable us to engage in conversations um, about the appropriate role of sex in our lives and might help us in thinking about, you know, the Me Too movement is going on right now and um, conversations in churches about um, about LGBTQ uh, folks and um, gay marriage and all kinds of things that are related to our attitudes about sex. Um, and I think that uh, we often just don't know how to talk about those things as church people. How then, if we're thinking about Me Too, and and mm. consent and and other things. Mm. So as as you're breaking down the Song of Songs, um, the woman, the Shulamite woman, she mm. doesn't seem to care um, about uh, any hierarchy. There seems to be an equality between the man and the woman. And I know that that's not the way um, the quote unquote traditional church would preach things. They preach more of the complementarian view, um, which I would right. never say that to my wife. Because I've I, I value my face, so I don't want to get hit. Mm. So, as as people are are reading the Song of Songs, um, I know mm. there's multiple ways to read it. But how do they make sure when they're reading it that they're that they're reading it correctly? That if they read something about consent or they or they don't understand a phrase, how do they make sure that they're they're reading it and they're not charging it with their own bias? <laughs> well. I think that, um, you know, I mean, this points at a much larger question, which is whenever we read any biblical text about anything, uh, what are we doing and, and how do we make sure we're reading it, uh, reading it correctly? And, you know, as a biblical scholar, I'm a little suspicious of the notion that there is a correct reading um, of any particular text. The texts open themselves up. Um, to multiple interpretations, which um, can sound a little scary, but from my perspective, it puts us as interpreters in the position of having to be agents of our own interpretation. We have to think through what is the range of interpretations that are here? Um, How does this relate to um, my um, own sense of what it means to be a person of faith? And then what is my community saying about about these things. So there's a conversation that happens between us and the Bible. It's not simply that the Bible tells us something. It's that, that we go to the Bible with questions and we come away with deeper, uh, with deeper thoughts about it. And oftentimes more questions. I like that idea of it's a conversation yeah. with the Bible. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And I mean, one thing you'll notice in my book is, uh, at least I hope that you, instead of coming away with like answers, simple answers about the way we ought to read. I hope you come away with more sophisticated questions about things that you might 
that you might ask of the Bible. I, I mean, I make my suggestions along the way about how I interpret these things, but there are at various points along the way invitations to the reader. And this doesn't work that great in a book, you know, but invitations to the reader to say, like, here's what I think, but what do you think about that? Um, and so the the way the book is written, I hope, is as an invitation to conversation um, and, a, and a deeper, an invitation into a deeper kind of way of thinking about what's happening in the biblical text um, that we can then, then ask different questions than we might have asked before. Yeah. On the issue of complementarianism, that's a, that's a difficult one. And um, one of the things that, uh, that I think is true is that on, on any given question, the Bible itself holds multiple perspectives. You'll see that most clearly in this book, in my chapter on Lamentations, uh, which we can talk about. Um, but there are biblical texts that seem fairly strongly to suggest a complementarian view of the relationship between uh, male and female, and particularly in the Deuteropauline letters in, in the New Testament. Um, I don't think that the Song of Songs has a complementarian view. I, I think it thinks about two lovers, one male, one female, who are um, who are exploring their um, their sexuality together, and there is invitation and and respect and response throughout most of the book. And you know, my position is not that now that the Song of Songs says this, like that's what the Bible says. But when we talk about what the Bible says, the Song of Songs perspective needs to be included alongside Colossians or Timothy or, or, or whatever it might be. Last question on that book. So how do you as a pastor then preach that on Sunday without, um, <laughs> without alienating every single uncomfortable member that you know is funding your organization? How do you write that line? Yeah, that's your, that's your job. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you, that my the job? Book, <laughs> no, I mean, the book is, uh, so you can tell in reading the book that I am somebody who teaches and, and somebody uh, whose congregation, I mean, you might not be able to tell this. I talk about it a little bit in the book, but my own congregation, I don't preach. Um, I uh, lead people through conversations about the Bible. And so I can say, well, when I read Song of Songs, this is what I see. Uh, and they can say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Or they can say, oh, no, that's a terrible idea. Um, and so uh, so there is no – and also when you work with people who live on the street, like there's not a lot of Time. money involved yeah. no. <laughs> with that. Well, well I think know? to boil that answer down, it sounds like what you're saying is the preacher speaks at people less and talks with people communally yeah. more. Um, and I think, I mean, you know, I'm, uh, I do preach, I don't preach on a weekly basis, but I also, my, my spouse is a, uh, is a um, pastor as well. And so I, I understand the need to be able to say something in 20 minutes or that, uh, that resonates and doesn't alienate. I also worry that when preaching, how do I preach this is the orienting question that what it results in is a simplification of the Bible in ways that are ultimately kind of problematic. So the, the Bible is a really rich and complicated set of texts. Um, and if we need to boil it down always to a 20 minute message with a clear takeaway that I can put in my pocket, um, I don't think we uh, treat it as respectfully as we might. 
I also think there's a reason that I ended up as a professor and not as a pastor, right. which is because my, my intuition is always to complicate things. Um, and I, and I'm not sure that that's, that's a way to get people to come back every Sunday. Although maybe it is, I haven't tried it. I, well, um, but when I say <laughs> that's your problem, what I mean is, uh, I have tried to open up the text in ways that I think show how the text is rich and pastors who are reading the book would then have to say, okay, now that I, now that I can think about all of that, like, what do I say on Sunday morning? I can remember when my wife and I first got married, um, many years ago, the church that we were attending, uh, where, where we had, you know, rented an apartment. One of the first times her mom came down to visit, she came to church with us and the pastor briefly paused and he said, guys, I'm going to pray for like three or four minutes. Um, we're going to be talking and he was talking about song of songs and he was talking about sex and he prefaced it by saying, this is important. This matters. Mm -hmm. It's a huge part of your life, your marriage in this church. There's bigger implications, mm -hmm. but again, if you haven't had a conversation and he spoke in code words, I'm going to pray for a really long time. So you've got about three and a half minutes to excuse yourself or get your 14 year old out of here, whatever you're comfortable with, and then come back and get ready for some mess. And our right. mother and my new mother-in-law sitting next to us and my wife was like, oh, this is going to go badly. This is going to go so badly. And at the end of it all, and I think she would mirror this, um, she's like, that's one of the best messages I've heard in a long time. Like, we should mm. talk about this more. And I was like, yes, mm. we did it right. Or, well, well, the pastor did it right. I want to move to Lamentations, and, and the reason being is lately, um, something that I've been preparing for discussions on is the prosperity gospel, because I don't mm. like it. I just I try to not often uh, give my opinion, but I'm not a fan of the prosperity gospel. And when you were breaking down Lamentations, I kept hearing echoes to a prosperity gospel, um, but because of the theology that you list that people will use from Deuteronomy 30 and 16 and 18, mm. basically saying that... Um, you know, God gives us what we deserve. And so if, you know, if our house burnt down, you did it wrong. Or if you're being successful, right. you probably did it right. Can you break down that theology a bit? And you did not really, that's, that's me, again, informing my bias into what I read, but I couldn't help detach the two as I read that, as I read that portion of your no, book. I, I think that is a, um, I think that is a reasonable interpretation of the theology of Deuteronomy. Uh, 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 of course, it's always more complicated than you can boil down to um, in, in one or two sentences. But Deuteronomy, um, what I call in the book is reward punishment theology. Um, in scholarly circles, it's often called the Deuteronomistic theology, um, which just means it's a theology of the book of Deuteronomy. But essentially, wh where the book of Deuteronomy comes out is God saying to Israel, if you follow the Torah, I will bless you, and if you do not, I will curse you. And so this is a, a message of obedience to God and reward for obedience and, um, and curse or punishment for disobedience. The way the prosperity gospel works in my mind is it just it just works that equation backwards. Mm -hmm. So it says, if you have been blessed, it's because you've been obedient. And if you have been cursed, it's because you've been disobedient, which is not actually what Deuteronomy does. 
but Deuteronomy lends itself to that kind of interpretation. Yeah. You, you see something similar in Proverbs, actually, on a more individual basis. And then you see books like Job that are really pushing back on that and saying, look, here's, here's your righteous sufferer. He's done everything right, and he's still suffering. What are you going to do with that? So the Bible itself recognizes that um, prosperity gospel gets us into trouble where we, we all know people who live good lives and bad things happen to them. So how, how can you account for that within the theology of Deuteronomy? And so, uh, so we have to find other ways of, of thinking as in addition to the Deuteronomistic theology. Yeah. As, as I, um, as I read through that, that portion of your book, there were different voices in Lamentations and and I might, Mm -hmm. and I'm probably going to say I'm wrong, but you have um, the person that victim blames, you have the strong man, and you have the scoffer. Um, can you briefly go over those? But what I really want you to speak on is the scoffer, because I feel like that's the voice and the mm-hmm. echo chamber that many of us in today's climate of America, I feel like that's the hat that mm-hmm. a lot of us wear on Twitter and on Facebook mm-hmm. and on whatever you know social circles we run in. Could you briefly go through mm-hmm. those just different voices and then zero in on scoffer? So scholars have recognized for a, for a, a while now that there are multiple speaking voices in the Book of Lamentations, and they they don't all agree with each other. The, the person that taught me about this was uh, Professor Kathleen O'Connor, who is my teacher at Columbia Seminary. Um, people talk about the voices differently. I myself see five. Um, one is. Uh, a figure called the daughter of Zion in Lamentations. She's basically a personification, a female personification of the city of Jerusalem. The second is a guy who speaks in um, Lamentations 3, uh, who uh, he just says, I am the man. And he, he uses a, a word that means um, a warrior. So um, so we call him the strong man. Um, there is a, a funeral singer um, who speaks in the first couple of chapters and ends up engaging in some dialogue with daughter Zion. And there's the scoffer who you mentioned, who I see in Lamentations 4. And then at the very end of the book, in the last chapter, there's a communal voice that speaks as a we instead of as an I. Um, and I see that as kind of the community's response to, to what's gone before. There's a couple of dynamics that I think are really interesting in that, uh, in that set of uh, voices. One of them is that two of those voices, well, three of those voices, have experienced uh, destruction and trauma themselves. Um, So daughter Zion says, this happened to me. The strong man says, this happened to me. Um, The communal voice says, this happened to us. And then there are two voices that seem a little distant from the suffering. So they talk about, look what happened to Jerusalem. Look what happened to Jerusalem. So I see part of that dynamic as, insider, outsider, people who have themselves been traumatized and people who haven't. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in that chapter is to say trauma, in this case, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple causes multiple theological responses. Um, And the book of Lamentations doesn't try to choose one of those. It lets them all kind of stand side by side. Um, Daughter Zion is uh, is angry at God for um, for the suffering she has endured, and she never really moves past that. She's just she's upset. She doesn't think she deserved it, and uh, she thinks there is no hope for the future. 
the strong man who also seems to have experienced uh, suffering, uh, he actually has a prosperity gospel kind of attitude. So he's basically saying, um, I'm suffering because I did something wrong. So if I just wait out God's anger, he will bless me. God will bless me again. So there you have a prosperity gospel and an anti-prosperity gospel um, voices that are in the book and both experienced by or expressed by people who have experienced trauma. Um, the two voices that have not experienced trauma, one is the funeral singer. And um, in my reading, he starts out a little judgmental about daughter Zion, um, you know, saying because you suffer because you sin. So like, why are you so upset? But after he listens to her for a little bit, he changes his, he changes his tune and even starts to weep on her behalf. The scoffer you're interested in starts that with that same position. You're suffering because you did something wrong and, you know, you, you deserve it. So like, what, what problem is it of mine? And he never changes his tune. He just like, that's what the scoffer thinks. Um, you got what you deserved. And, um, you know, I say in the book, he's, he's the one voice in that in lamentations that I would get rid of if I could, like, I, I, I don't like what, he, what he has to say, but lamentations is insistent that he's part of the community too. So even if you don't like what he says, like you, you kind of have to figure out a way to, to let him, to let him hang around. Maybe he'll change his mind later. I don't know, but, um, but we've, we've all got to stay together as a community. That's kind of the message of that, of that book, I think. And when I read it, what I what what I don't want to hear, but what I feel like I am hearing, and and since reading your book, I've gone back and I've read Lamentations a few times, uh, and that started mm. with a different a different book. I read Prophetic Lament from uh, Professor Sunchan Ra, and so there's just been a lot of that. Which is when you engage that much in sad text, it, it tends to make you a bit sad. But what I'm understanding, or what I think I'm beginning understanding, is um, everyone's entitled to their voice but everyone's mm. not entitled to be a hundred percent true and correct that there's a portion of the daughter of Zion and a portion of the scoffer and a portion of every other voice that is, that is in some way or shame or some way or form correct because it's, it's their personal story. Uh, but that doesn't mean that anyone else is necessarily incorrect. And I think that that's the piece that so many in the church today miss, or at least what I think so many people in the church miss. Yeah. You know, that chapter starts out with a conversation about uh, Black Lives Matter and the role of anger and protest, both in the church and also in society. Um, and what I view as pe- people trying to shut down those voices and say, it's time for you to move on to something else. Um, and my reading of Lamentations says um, that community, um, the, the Black Lives Matter protesters, um, they get to be angry for as long as they are angry. And, uh, you know, I see daughter Zion kind of representing that kind of position and Lamentations never tries to move her along. It just lets her be angry. And I mean, I assume the hope is that at some point she comes to something else. Um, but for the duration of the book, she, she just gets to speak her truth. and. You know, I don't know if you if you necessarily need to say she her truth is true, but it's only partially true. Or 
or something like that. I, I don't think Lamentations actually gets us there. I think it just says she has a truth and it is her truth. And that truth might be incompatible with the truth of the strong man who also has his own truth. Um, and uh, they get they get to think what they think and we Lamentations doesn't correct them. But what it does do is hold them together. So it says, even when we are fundamentally incompatible in our theological or political responses to things, we still belong to each other. And so somehow we have to figure out a way to all be in community together without trying to uh, to shut down or, or even to kind of um, uh, limit the... Um, the fullness of the truth of others in the community. Yeah. It's a beautiful idea. I don't, I don't know exactly how one does that in practice. Um, but I think lamentations is offering us a vision of a community that holds together, even though um, the people in it have very different theological perspectives. Uh, it's a, it's a really beautiful image, I think. Yeah. I don't know how you do it either. Um, I find that churches begin even if they start that way, they, they quickly homogenize down to a common denominator yeah. and then just branch off into the, the yeah. we didn't agree. And that's, that's why we have, you know, 197 million different, different uh, church denominations. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. an exaggeration, but we'll probably get there in the next, you know, 40, 50 years, get that many. Um, <laughs> I want to, I want to shift to Ruth and, and I don't think we'll get to the other couple books that you've written on and that's fine. Um, specifically because I don't hear well, I've I've dealt a bit with Ruth and a, di- with, a bit with Esther uh, this year and some other mm-hmm. in some other readings, but I like the idea of, of both Esther and Ruth are are giving a voice to the immigrant, and and Esther mm-hmm. does it more of you can assimilate to a point I think, and but you also need to remember where you're from and remember why you have a voice and use it wisely is what I hear in mm-hmm. Esther, uh, but Ruth is more the opposite. Um, you break down Ruth and, and, and it, when I read you and when I read what you've read about it, it's, 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 it's about commitment and it's about going and making a decision, standing by that decision, but doing it logically and in a way that betters the community. Is that an overgeneralization? It probably is. I'm sure that is. (laughs) I mean, everything is always an overgeneralization, (laughs) right? But, um, yeah, the two books do have a lot in common, Ruth and Esther. The, the distinction that I would make, I think, is that Esther is written from the perspective of a community that is a minority in, in the place where it finds itself. So it is written from the perspective of Jews living in the capital of the Persian Empire. Right. So its perspective is how do we live when we are not the dominant culture? Ruth is kind of the opposite of that. It's written from the perspective of people within the land of Israel. Um, And the question is, how do we relate to this foreigner, this Moabite Ruth, who has come to take her, uh, to build her life among us um, as the the daughter-in-law of this Israelite Naomi? So she's married into an Israelite family, her uh, her husband. and her father-in-law have died, and now she and her mother-in-law are trying to make a life uh, in Israel where she is a foreigner. But the perspective of the book is from the is from the perspective of the Israelites who are the dominant culture. Yeah. 
it's, so the question is, what is the role of a foreigner? And, you know, the way that I read the book, and it's not the only way to read it, but I think it's a productive one, is to read the book of Ruth in light of other Old Testament books like Ezra and Nehemiah that have kind of an anti-foreigner orientation to them. So foreign women in particular are um, uh, suspect and maybe uh, should be even exiled out of the country. Ruth, by contrast, says, uh, look, here's this woman. She's a Moabite. Um, She is traditionally an enemy of the Israelites or her people are. But she comes into Israel. She learns the customs. She commits herself to her mother-in-law. She um, builds a life for them. In some ways, she saves the life of her her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi. Um, And as we find out at the end of the book, she becomes the great-grandmother of King David, the greatest uh, king of uh, of the Old Testament. So on, on the one hand, the book of Ruth is making that kind of a claim that, uh, that foreigners have something to contribute, immigrants have something to contribute, um, and so we ought to, we ought to welcome them. Um, at the very end of that chapter, I spend some time reading, particularly Gail Yi, who's a, a Chinese-American biblical scholar, and Yolanda Norton, who's an African-American biblical scholar. And um, they read that book um, from the perspective of someone who doesn't fit into the dominant culture. So they are they are more attuned to the character of Ruth than somebody like me. Um, and so they point out the ways in which Ruth has had to um, compromise her own ethnic identity and has had to um, let go of the traditions of her own people. And so they they lament the book of Ruth in an interesting kind of way, like, yes, okay, it says that immigrants can can belong to the culture, but it but it says they can do that only by way of um of losing touch with their own roots. Uh so so that chapter uh for me um suggests uh so it, it reads against Ruth a little bit to say we, we should welcome immigrants, we who are in the dominant culture, but we also need to be careful about the ways that we are asking people um, to let go of their own cultural heritage. Yeah. And that's a conversation that's happening daily in America. Um, right. exactly. not, not to bog down on a political immigration policy question. So I'll, I'll defer all that. Um, I'm, a concept that I wasn't necessarily familiar with, uh, again, because of my lack of reading of the book and my lack of understanding of ancient um, history, is is the role of redeemer that Boaz plays. And and yeah. so what does that look like today? Like, is there a role similar to that today that we could call someone, you know, in the 21st century, quote unquote, redeemer? Is there anything like that that we still do? Uh, oh, that's an interesting question. The the book of Ruth is a little confusing about exactly what it means about the role of the Redeemer. Uh, but the way that I read the role of the Redeemer is that the character Boaz um, has a responsibility for his um, his relative Naomi, uh, who is who is a woman whose husband has died. And she owns a piece of land um, that has some value. And so his role as redeemer is to um, is to make sure that she is uh, 
is able to survive, is taken care of, has a place to live, is able to eat, um, and takes care of her property um, until uh, a descendant of hers can can take it back from him. So he's almost like a um, entrust. The property is entrusted to him. So I, I, I'm struggling a little bit to think of what is what is the parallel, some kind of a trustee of an estate. Yeah, or something I mean, there like may that. not there may not be one, because as I read you break it down, it was basically I mean, he basically took a big risk in saying, yeah, you know, we'll do this. You can have it. Not a big deal. Um, like, almost like a chess match on knowing knowing his opponent, knowing what that would be like. Uh, but he did it yeah. in a selfless way. Um, and I can tell you as a banker, a lot of times trust never let assets leave the trust. Um, it's not always selfless. You would hope that it is. Um, but it's often, often not. And, and I, I wasn't certain what your answer would be. Um, I just was genuinely curious as I sat there and thought about it. I was like, does this, cause it it is a good role for someone to be able to play. Um, I just didn't know if it still in some way, in some form existed. It would be beautiful if it did. You know, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book is to open up the ancient context in ways that uh, suggest connections to contemporary life. Um, But there are lots of folks uh, whose background or experience is different than mine, and they see different connections than I see. And so I think this is one of those one of those cases where it never actually occurred to me to ask. Uh, whether there is a role like Boaz's role in contemporary life, but like that's a question that occurred to you. And so one of the things that I hope will happen when people read the book is that they they might see different connections um, than I see, and which might lead to different or richer or better interpretations uh, than the ones I'm able to offer. Yeah. Well, I will forgo my last question because that was it. What is your hope when people read the book? And I think you beautifully just answered it there. Uh, and so where... Can people engage with you, um, Robert Williamson? Where can they get a hold of the book? Obviously, Amazon and everywhere else. Uh, it launches on August first, I believe. Uh, how right, can the book they... is published by Fortress Press, and so so any any of the Fortress Press connections, you can find the book. It launches on August first. It um, it is available, of course, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and places like that. Um, I think if you order, if you pre-order it, it'll, it'll ship on August 1st and then otherwise it's available. Um, you can find me, um, on Facebook at, uh, my author page is Robert Williamson Jr. Um, the URL is Robert Williamson Jr. author, facebook.com slash. Um, and, um, I also have a website where I, um, where I'm, uh, blogging about things right now. I'm not blogging about the book, but I'm writing about biblical texts um, and their connection to contemporary life. Um, and that's just robertwilliamsonjr.com. So they can find me there as well. And I'll encourage listeners um, as you go out and you purchase the book. One of my favorite parts is, is um, Robert gives some pickup lines in song of songs uh, to use with your significance. So I would encourage you to try those and then just give some feedback, you know, which ones worked, <laughs> which ones didn't, um, maybe change them, maybe give some common day variations. So I think that would be, I think that would be a fun thought experiment. Why not? <laughs> I, so. I think that's a terrible idea, honestly. <laughs> People can try it if they want to. Yeah, I read a few to my wife and she's like, where is this from? I was like, it's from the Bible. I mean, this is holy. This is, this should work. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, well, yeah, Robert, Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I'm, I'm happy to have you on, and, and, and maybe in the future we can have you on for a different topic. 
I would love to. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, Seth, and um, I'm happy to talk with you anytime. challenge you all to listen in at what your communities of faith are talking about. Are they taking the easy passages, the easy roads, the parts of scripture that don't require us to think about immigration and don't require us to think about sex and equality and assimilation and lamentation and grief. And if your church is not doing that, you're called to do something about that, to speak out and say, hey, it's a huge segment of scripture that we're not touching on. And for our church fathers and for the history of our church, that has historically mattered and we need to make it matter again. Go out and get a copy of Robert's book. And if you do, uh, get, send some feedback to Robert. You can find him at R. Williamson Jr. His website is robertwilliamsonjr.com. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you to the Silver Pages for the use of your music. One last thing before we leave. I have nanescent inklings of thoughts of what I would like to do with next year of this show. And that sentence in and of itself is a little bit bigger than I thought it would be. I had no intention that uh, the Can I Say This at Church podcast would turn into what it's turned into. And I'm enjoying every minute of it. I'm enjoying how the community continues to grow week over week over week and talking with you all and reading books with you all, studying scripture and debating scripture with you all. It's fantastic. And I would like to do some of that in person. I would like to hold maybe live recordings or gatherings where we can meet, discuss, grab a beer or wine or tea or whatever it is that you grab. That will not happen without your help, though. So if you have not yet committed to do so, please go to the Patreon page, uh, which you will find in the show notes or at canisaythisatchurch.com and pledge some support. I look forward to meeting you all if you'll help me do so. I'll talk to you next week. Appreciate each and every one of you. Be blessed. Be blessed.